Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. In 1903, there was a quiet little town in the Canadian Rockies, town of Frank, Alberta. It was built under the shadow of Turtle Mountain. There were rich seams of coal in Turtle Mountain that caused the people to build a town underneath its shadow. So this desire for coal led the residents to ignore the regular tremors in the rocks that were above. In fact, the miners got so used to these tremors, they even started counting on the tremors to knock loose the seams of coal. They really enjoyed the tremors because it would do their work for them and it would knock loose the seams of coal and make their work easier. Even the local Blackfoot nation did not like to go near the mountain. They referred to it like this, as the mountain that walks. That's never a good thing. And it got to the point just before the end that the mine had become basically self-operating. It really did. All the miners had to do was just go in and shovel up the coal as it fell from the ceiling of the mine when the ground shook. That's a little too rich for my blood. They ignored the warnings, and just after 4 a.m. on April the 29th of 1903, you can imagine what happened. A huge and enormous piece of Turtle Mountain, 3,000 feet long and 500 feet thick, broke off and tumbled down into the valley below. This is actually from a postcard back in that day showing what became known as the Frank Slide. And the exact number of dead will never be known. At least 76 men, women, and children were killed as the town was just covered. And only 12 bodies were recovered from the 100 million tons of limestone that fell down upon Frank, Alberta. Now there are plenty of tremors today. All you got to do is turn on the news that are cause for concern. Tremors that warn you of what is yet to come. There's a lot of sickness in the land. There's a lot of protests. There's government unrest, a loss of freedom. A loss of freedom is not just a thing of the future. It's actually here today, now. And there's also a complacent church of Jesus Christ in the land. All the concerns that dominate the headlines result in one survey telling us that about three out of four people think a major disaster will come in their lifetime that will be a judgment from God. More than 62% of Americans think that the world will experience a major catastrophe in less than 20 years. And almost half of all of Americans, 49%, would forego new high-end appliances in a new home if it had a safe room or a bomb shelter instead. A lot of people are running scared these days. People are just talking about the end times. People are expecting a disaster of some kind, a financial meltdown once the socialists and communists take over our government. But here is where Christ makes all the difference. Because instead of living in fear like the rest of the world, we don't have to be afraid. All we need 
is the right perspective. And that is what the book of Revelation is all about, giving us the right perspective. It helps us to see our tribulation, not just the great tribulation, but our tribulation on this earth from a heavenly perspective by looking at the great tribulation yet to come. Revelation tells us about the reign of a coming world tyrant. It describes God's judgment, which will be unleashed on this earth. The last seven judgments are described as bowls of wrath in Revelation 16. And yet in the middle of it all, Revelation invites us to look at our trials from heaven's perspective, to see the future from God's standpoint, to understand world events from a divine point of view. If you have your Bibles, I really would invite you to turn with me this morning to Revelation 15, where we are going to get the divine point of view. So verse 1, we start this morning, verse 1 tells us, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. That's no small statement, the wrath of God is complete. In the midst of the tribulation, God wants us to know something about the seven angels and the end of pain, the end of God's wrath. Because by this time in the book of Revelation, we are coming to the end of the tribulation judgments. First, there were the seven seal judgments. You can read about them back in chapter 6. Then were the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9. And now we come to the last seven judgments of the tribulation, the very last seven. Seven angels will pour out their seven plagues on the earth in the next chapter. The seventh trumpet judgment is the seven bold judgments. It's pretty simple. These are terrible judgments upon mankind, but with them God's wrath is going to be spent. His anger is going to be finished. The seven angels have the last seven plagues, and the wording tells us that these are not to be thought of as long, drawn-out epidemics, but plagues that come with a quick, sudden impact. Swift, severe, destructive, fierce, powerful, the last judgments of God before the second coming of Christ and God's blessing then will finally, finally come as Jesus returns to this earth to reign for a thousand years at his second coming and then that marriage supper of the Lamb. Now I remind you that Scripture teaches believers from the church age will not go through the tribulation judgments. We who have trusted Christ will be taken out of the world before these judgments of God take effect. But after we are taken out of this world, after we are taken out, some will trust Christ as their Savior and they will go through the tribulation. They will experience its terror. And for them, think of this truth in that day. This will be a great, great comfort for them. God's anger will not last forever. His judgment will come to an end. In other words, the pain is only temporary, but the praise will last forever. That's the perspective of heaven, see? Not only for the tribulation saints, but for us as well as we go through the lesser tribulations in this life. Psalm 30, verse 5 puts it this way. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. In the 1976 Montreal Olympics, a Japanese gymnast, Shun Fujimoto, broke his right knee during the floor exercises. Now that's a problem if you're doing what he was doing. And most expected 
it's common sense. You would expect the guy to drop out at this point, to just take, take a knee, no pun intended, just take a knee, right? Withdraw from the competition. So everyone was a little surprised when they saw him the next day competing on the rings. And he was doing well. He was performing very well. But everyone wondered how he would handle the dismount when they spin off and come down and land. Well, Shun came to the end of his routine, and without hesitation, he just flew off those rings with a twisting triple somersault. And there was a, a moment where the whole audience just kind of gasped, and it was intensely quiet as he landed very, very hard on his wounded knee. And then the audience gave him this thundering applause, and he stood his ground in pain. Well, later, of course, the reporters had to ask about it. And they asked him about that moment, and he replied like this. He said, oh, the pain, the pain, the pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But now, but now I have a gold medal, and the pain is gone. See, that's the way it is for the believer in Christ. The pain of this life and this life can be a pain sometimes. It really can be a pain. The pain of this life is only temporary, but the reward for being, hear this part, the reward for being a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, that, that is eternal. So in the midst of all the tribulations of life, in the midst of all your struggles in life, in the midst of your sorrow and in your pain, get heaven's perspective on things. God will judge this world, and the pain and the suffering will end. And there will be a sea of glass and peace that belongs to God's people, even in the pain. So be calm and secure in the sovereignty of our God. Verse 2, watch this text. It's fantastic. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark... And over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. This is a fantastic verse. This is a great little verse. This is great truth from the word of God. The sea of glass, if you're tracking with this, you're going to be rewarded with a beautiful teaching. The sea of glass, it takes us back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. It says this. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The sea of glass in the midst of the throne, it is mingled with fire with God's people there worshiping him. Now in chapter 4, let's put some pieces of the puzzle together. In chapter 4, we saw that the sea speaks of the holiness of God. The sea is designed to reflect the glory of God. It represents the holiness of God and the majesty of God that separates God from his creation. The sea of glass mingled with fire speaks of God's divine judgment proceeding out of his holiness. And the fact that the saints are able to stand on the sea of glass reflects the faithfulness of God in upholding his own in keeping with his divine, holy, and righteous character. These are the tribulation saints standing on the crystal sea of glass before a holy and righteous God. They trusted Christ during the tribulation. They refused to worship the Antichrist. They refused to bow down to his image and the mark of the beast described in chapter 13. So what does the beast do? He kills them. 
And from earth's perspective, it looks like Satan has won. But from heaven's perspective, they are described as those who have victory over the beast. That's what we read in the text. Victory over the beast. And so even though they are killed for their faith in Christ, they are victorious. And here we see them, even with God's fiery judgment flashing all around, these tribulation saints are seen standing on this sea of glass, having harps of God worshiping him. Not large harps like we would think of today in an orchestra, but the lyre, the smaller instruments held in the hand. Just as God used Moses to deliver the people from Egypt at the Exodus and they crossed the Red Sea, so it is that Jesus Christ will deliver his tribulation saints killed for their faith to stand on the sea before the throne of God. They will refuse to worship the Antichrist and their reward will be to worship God in heaven. So notice the picture that's given. Notice what the Word of God is telling us this morning. They're at peace. They're calm. They're not afraid. They have harps of God worshiping Him. Perhaps we need that right now. Perhaps we need that perspective in our lives in the storm we face now. You know, I think Daniel found it when he was in the lion's den, didn't he? Daniel 6 tells us he rested all night long in that lion's den. He, he got some rest. While King Darius was unable to sleep even though he's in the palace because he was worried about Daniel. And this type of perspective is why we see Peter in Acts 6 in prison, bound with chains to soldiers, guards at the door. And what was Peter doing? Peter was sleeping. Because Peter was at peace with God. See, that's living by faith. That's being fearless in the storm because of what Jesus Christ has already done for us. It leads us to worship. We can be, as believers in Christ, fearless when the lion is roaring. We can be at peace and secure even when the fire of judgment all around us is surrounding us. And we can sing praises to our king. Verses 3 and 4. Watch what it says. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. You track with this. The text is going to take us a little deeper and there's going to be a connection, a beautiful connection with the Israelites in the Old Testament. You see, the definite article here and the repetition of the word song tells us that we have two songs in view. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is a new song. So John describes the lyrics for us. In Revelation, that's what he's describing there, the song of the Lamb. He's writing it out. He refers back to the song of Moses in the Old Testament and tells us about the new song described for us in Revelation 15. Now, the song of Moses, it recounts the faithfulness of God to Israel as a nation. And even though a large number of Israelites will die for Christ in the tribulation, the song of the Lamb speaks of the nations worshiping God made possible by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and includes all the saints of the earth, Jews and Gentiles. The song of Moses, where was that sung? That was sung at the Red Sea. 
And the song of the Lamb is going to be sung at the crystal sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon and all the false worship and government rule that's coming. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out of Egypt. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people into heaven. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the very last song we see in Scripture. The song of Moses remembered the execution of an enemy, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. And the song of the Lamb is the same thing. It deals with the same themes. It's beautiful. Now, most would think that the song of Moses referred to here was the song of Exodus 15. I agree. That was sung by Moses and the children of Israel when they were victorious over Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Let's just take a few verses. You can go home and read the rest. But let's just read a few verses from Exodus where it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord, notice this part, a very important part. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And it goes on to say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He has chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. And then let's skip down to just verse 6 real quick. It says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in your power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The song of Moses in Revelation is probably a reference to this in Exodus 15. Some think it might be a reference to Deuteronomy 32, but Exodus 15 fits the context so, so well. The song of Exodus 15 refers to God delivering Israel from the Egyptians, God defeating the Egyptian army, and Israel being prepared for entrance into the promised land. It was a song that was sung often by the Jewish people when they gathered at the Sabbath. It was sung when Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity and when they reestablished their government and restored temple worship in Jerusalem. They sang that song and from Exodus 15. They used that refrain that I just pointed out of Exodus 15 too at their dedication services that says this, the Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. You see, the Israelites, they had stood by the side of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, singing the song of Moses, thankful for God's deliverance. And the time is coming when the tribulation saints will be delivered safely from the tribulation. How? How are they going to be delivered safely? By death. And they're going to stand by the crystal sea, by the throne of God, and sing the song of Moses. I hope you're paying attention and you see the beauty of God's word. I hope you can see it, Christians, because there's a deep, beautiful truth here. Do you see the beauty of God's word? Victorious saints delivered from the judgments of the tribulation to witness the defeat of the Antichrist and the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom, singing about the song of Moses, about Israel being delivered from their enemies and delivered into the promised land once and for all. 
Isaiah 12 also predicts in the future when God calls and regathers his people back into the land, the people will sing that song once again. It was an important song to the Jewish nation, to their worship. Both songs praise God for who he is, for what he has done. He is the God Almighty, the righteous and true king who alone is holy. It says his works are great and marvelous. His ways are just. He is worthy of worship by all nations, which points to a profound truth about worship. No matter whether the songs are new or whether the songs are old, the purpose of worship is to glorify God for who he is and for what he has done. Even though they've been through the great tribulation. These tribulation believers are praising God. They are exalting God. That's why we're here. And they're announcing that, hey, God's ways are right. There will be no complaints on that day. There'll be no moaning. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Why did I have to suffer so much in the tribulation? And why did you allow so many of your people to be tortured and killed for their faith in Christ? See, at this point, they have no questions for God. Because their questions have been answered in heaven. And I mean this when I say that. From heaven's perspective, they will see that God's ways have been right all along. God's ways have been right from day one. And here we see them singing God's praise. It is the same thing that you and I are going to do when we get to heaven. We will sing his praises because we will see that his works are remarkable. Verse 3 says, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. God's works are amazing. They are beyond human comprehension. Augustine, the 5th century theologian, he was strolling once on the beaches of the Mediterranean Sea one morning. He was engaged in deep thought, and he was trying to understand the nature of God. And you kind of, when you start thinking some of the deeper things of God, you start getting a little down these, these subjects. It starts, gets a little mind boggling at times. But then his thoughts were interrupted when he saw this little boy. And this story tells me that nothing changes in, in thousands of years of history. Because he was interrupted when he saw this little boy running towards the ocean with a bucket of water. He watched as the boy filled his bucket with water and ran back up the beach to pour it in a little hole that he had dug in the sand. And within seconds, the water was gone, soaked into that dry, sun-baked sand. And again, the little boy went down to the ocean. He filled his bucket with water and he ran back to the hole and poured the water right in. And again, the sand swallowed it all up. The water went right down again. And Augustine approached the boy with a smile and he asked him, he said, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? And the boy was a little annoyed by Augustine. He was kind of a little annoyed at him. And he, he was annoyed that he was being interrupted with his project in the sand. But he said this. I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. And Augustine said that at that point, it was then that he realized something profound, that he was behaving a lot like that little boy. He was trying to pour the ocean of the truth about God into his own little head. And he was having no more success than the little boy with his bucket. Because there's so much that God has revealed to us in his word. There's a lot we know about God. And certainly, as we've seen in scriptures, his spirit teaches us and we can know so much. But no man, no woman can figure out God completely. 
We don't fully understand all that he is. We don't fully understand all that he does, nor do we understand why he allows suffering, why he allows pain. We don't understand why he allows Satan to steal, to kill and destroy. But even so, we will sing just like the tribulation saints because his works, they are remarkable and we will see that his ways are righteous. Even though his ways are beyond our comprehension, we know that his ways are right. So verse 3 says, just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. And we may not see it on this earth, but in heaven we will know it for certain. Someone once wrote this about God, and it's worth repeating. He writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes and try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right. If the tribulation saints will be able to sing God's praise, if those who will experience unspeakable pain will be able to praise God, then certainly we will too. We will sing because God's works are remarkable. His ways are righteous. And verse 4 tells us all nations will come and worship before him. It says literally they will bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this the teaching in Philippians 2 and 10 and 11? Where it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, there's coming a day when not only believers, but the entire world will recognize that Jesus is God, that God has done what is right in every single case which is where our text takes us, that God in heaven has a purpose for everything. Let's start again in verse 5. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony of heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. John He listened to this vast choir of tribulation saints worship their songs of victory. His attention was turned again to the preparations for the final outpouring, final outpouring of God's wrath on earth. Now, John saw a temple in heaven, and at the time of John's writing this, the earthly temple in Jerusalem had been in ruins for more than 25 years. But the temple on earth was only a model of the heavenly temple fashioned by God himself. This is the teaching, of course, of Hebrews chapter 8. The tent of witness, or the tabernacle of the testimony, is the holy of holies in heaven. It is the most holy place in heaven where God himself dwells. In the Old Testament, the law was often referred to as the testimony and was stored in the Ark of the Covenant in the room called what? The holy of holies. Most of you guys know this. But notice this again in verse 5. There was something different about the temple in heaven. What does it say in verse 5? It says that instead of the holy place or the holy of holies being limited only to the high priest to come in once a year and offer sacrifices on behalf of a sinful people, this temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. It was opened. And there Christ himself serves as our eternal high priest. So I want you to look at the contrast. The tribulation believers killed for their faith. The heavenly tabernacle is a temple with unhindered 
access to God. But for the unbelievers alive at that time, this same tabernacle becomes a temple of doom, doesn't it? It becomes a temple of doom. Seven angels will come out from the temple, clothed in priestly garments, pure bright linen, their chests girded with golden bands. And even the angels themselves dare not have any spot or blemish in the presence of a holy God. And then verses 7 and 8 tell us this. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lived forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The seven angels come from the presence of a holy God ready to judge the earth. And no one can stop them. No one can come into God's presence and beg him to hold them back. No one can enter the temple because it is filled with the smoke of God's glory and power. When the earthly tabernacle was first completed back in the days of Moses, Exodus 40 tells us this. It says, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And see, this is telling us that the heavenly tabernacle will be consumed by the glorious presence of a holy God. That's why it's difficult for me sometimes when I see Christians who don't take the worship of God very serious. Because look at how serious it is in heaven. It's very serious. There's a holy God. It's the presence of a holy God. You know, when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law in Exodus 19, the text says it was completely in smoke. It was completely in smoke. The smoke in the heavenly temple is from the glory of God and from his power. God's holiness demands justice. His righteousness requires that sin is punished. His integrity insists that all the wrong things be made right in the end. And that is exactly what's going to happen. The judgment of God is the direct response to the plea of the tribulation saints killed for their faith, for God to avenge their sufferings and death. See, these bowls of wrath begin to answer the age-old question that you hear so many times. Why the wicked, why the lost, why the unredeemed seem to go unpunished while the righteous suffer injustice? See, God's mercy has suffered long, giving men an opportunity to repent. But we must never presume on God's mercy. Judgment postponed is not the same thing as judgment denied. And during the final days of the tribulation, the temple in heaven is filled with God's glory. But the earth, the earth will be filled with his wrath because his character and his authority demands that he must act. Christian author John White, he wrote, I'm going to gross some of you out. He wrote about the time his one-year-old son Scott fell on a cement driveway and he split that area right there below his chin open. And this cut was, this gets gross, this cut was so deep that the floor of his mouth was open and exposed. Now at the time, they were in a very remote location and there was no doctors and there was no hospitals for at least 150 miles through windy mountain roads. So he looked around to see what he had to take care of this wound. And all that he had was one needle, some coarse thread, one pair of dull scissors, pair of eyebrow tweezers. 
And he was worried about infection because infection in children can set in quick and infection in the floor of the mouth can be serious, even fatal. And so they made the decision that they needed to trim and stitch the wound with what they had. But they had no anesthetic, nothing to numb the pain. So they sterilized the instruments and John did the best he could to explain to his son, but how much can a one-year-old understand? Not much, not much at all. So young Scott was placed on dining room table and pain, pain was inflicted upon that young man. Adults held his limbs and his head down so that he couldn't move, so that he couldn't escape. And the father that he trusted became a fearful monster to him, inflicting unbelievable pain on him. And John said later, how I wish that he could understand that I feared for his life. Mercifully, he still seemed to trust me when it was over. And I want to tell you this, that sometimes our Heavenly Father, He allows us as His children to experience unbelievable pain in this life. Something far beyond our ability to comprehend, but someday we'll be able to look back and see that everything that He did was right. Exactly right. Precisely right. This will be the experience of the tribulation saints in Revelation 15, suffering on earth, killed for their faith, but now seen singing to God in heaven. Worship based on who he is and what he's done for us. It's the heavenly perspective that we need now today more than ever. Trust in God during our own trials in life. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, we talk of God much and loudly, but secretly in our thoughts, we think of him as being absent. And we think of ourselves as inhabiting a parenthetic interval between the God who was and the God who will be. That's to our shame, I would say. The Song of Moses draws on God's past deliverance. The Song of the Lamb looks forward to his future vengeance. But John's vision of joy in heaven and sorrow on earth in Revelation 15 should grab our attention, should turn our attention to our own situation today. Express gratitude for God's promise of protection because before the events of the tribulation described in Revelation 15, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us before the tribulation even starts, those with faith in Jesus Christ from the church age alive at that time, what? Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And even though God has not judged the world yet with his wrath, Believers in Christ, boy, we can thank God for the victory over the enemy. You know, sometimes the idea of God's judgment on earth scares us. Maybe you look at the book of Revelation and it scares you. But if we've been mistreated in life, it is the very thing that draws us closer to him. So rejoice that there is a God who will right the wrongs. There is a God who is going to judge the sin. There is a God who will mete out justice in the end. This is the comfort of the tribulation saints, those persecuted and killed for simply holding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it should be the comfort to you because you will not find justice in this world. Mark my words, you won't. It should be the comfort for you. So look to the peace that is ours even in the pain and rejoice with the saints in heaven, even if you have to go through hell on earth. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.